The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to anybody who's new tonight. Welcome to Common Ground. And uh, we've been looking, if you're new, we've been looking at a book or reading through a book called Food for the Heart by Ajahn Chah, a very well-known Thai Buddhist monk and meditation master who died in the early 90s and responsible for training many of the Western teachers and just a significant influence on this style of meditation practice here in the States and more generally in the West as well as quite influential still in Thailand, those monasteries that he started. And this chapter, chapter 30, is called Right View, the Place of Coolness. And this is a, it's a really useful simile, I guess, this experience of coolness, because generally we're quite attracted to things that are that stir us up. You know, we're in a way, willing to pay a lot of money for things that stir us up, excite us. And, uh, you know, things that excite us, they excite us for a while, and then, you know, it's not that long before we lose interest. And then we'll need something else. I see this a lot. I'm sure you guys also see this when we're looking at the Internet, you know, and there might be an article that, or something, a photograph, or something that gets us interested, raises the energy, oh, there might be something here. And then we get whatever we're going to get, and then there's a certain hunger, like, well, what else? What else is here? What else can I look at? And this is just generally how we move through life, wanting the next stimulus to make us feel alive, make us feel that whatever we're doing, that it's significant. So when we, when the Buddha uses something like coolness, and even more, and you have to remember this set of teachings arose in the tropics where things are quite warm, more than they are cool, so it's a little different. But just to, uh, the whole idea of nibbana, nirvana, is also coolness. It's the, it's really the word for the extinguishing of a fire, or for something cooling down. And this is, you know, in Buddhist practice, this is the direction of our practice. We're interested in the putting down of the load. We're interested in the cooling down. And this, it takes a, it takes some real experience, more than just words. It takes some real experience to understand this, and most importantly, to learn to trust this. So it's okay to be a little suspicious. And a lot of times, you know, when I'm giving a talk or people are reading or hearing other talks, it's sort of like, oh, that doesn't sound right. It sounds like somebody's becoming indifferent or being disconnected, withdrawing from life, becoming passive, maybe even afraid of involvement or engagement, afraid of the messiness of life. And then it strikes them, well, that can't be the way. Appropriately so. It isn't the way. So we want to make sure that we're not hearing the simile of coolness, the place of coolness, what the Buddha is calling right view, this right understanding, or wisdom is a understanding that is cool. 
that that doesn't mean indifference or aversion to life. That's a real shadow in Buddhist practice, people, that misunderstanding. Because it's pretty easy for us human beings that aren't completely overwhelmed, it's pretty easy for us to discern how messy life is and how often it is agitating. Even like relatively good situations are agitating. Um, even if you have a good job or a good partner or good health, you know, it's still agitating having a body. It's agitating having a relationship. It's agitating having to earn a living, you know, in, in the world. So even when things are working out, let alone, you know, when it's not working out so well, those things. So we know that pretty well. I don't have to sort of build a case that life is limited, the world is limited, challenging at times. Does it mean it isn't beautiful? Does it mean that there aren't pleasant experiences? Clearly they are. There are pleasant experiences. But the whole involvement, be having a body and a mind and being involved and relating to our lives, our circumstances, it's difficult, it's challenging, and often agitating. And when we get this, intuitively, even though we don't understand maybe the way, intuitively we're attracted to the release of that agitation. And see, this is where the mistake arises, where we think, okay, then the release, if the world is agitating, then the release comes from escaping the world. And this it's this mistake that heats us up. The opposite of coolness, right? Okay, I'm going to get my act together, and I'm going to retreat from the world. I'm going to have that proverbial cabin on the north shore or the south shore of Lake Superior, and it will be on a dead-end road, and uh, very few people will know I'm there, just the right people, and uh, maybe I won't have a cell phone. And uh, I noticed Gwen and I, my wife and I, have looked at places on the south shore, and one of the... Uh, one of the side effects of the stimulus package that was passed after the big recession was that a lot of these obscure places got, what do they call it, fiber optic internet access, <laughs> including the south shore of Lake Superior. They, when we were up there a couple of years ago, they were digging these big you know, trenches and laying down the, for people who own you know, really nice cabins on <laughs> Lake Superior. Now they can be connected, but... You know, you just imagine your own perfect retreat where all of a sudden, as we imagine it, it's not actually true, but as we imagine it, we're free. I mean, that's what the imagination can do. We can imagine being free from everything that's challenging in life. The people that are challenging, the circumstances. You know, it's probably, you know, so many nice places out in the country, there's all these deer ticks, so we don't want those places. <laughs> we got to find the places where there aren't deer ticks. You know, and then we want to be around people who are like-minded, whatever that means for you. You know, we don't want to be around those crazy liberals or those crazy conservative people or whatever it might be. Just that right place where nobody will agitate us. And the thing that we discover is this is so agitating. These ideas of, you know, even if you think Seward neighborhood, this neighborhood here in Minneapolis, which is, you know, a really nice place to live, but... 
it's not perfect. And that's just the way that life or the world is. It isn't perfect. That's That could be the very definition of the world, is that it can't be governed in a way that makes it perfect. And so the thing that actually heats us up, that agitates the mind, disturbs the mind, is our attempt to escape the world. Either we're busy trying to get peace by consuming things, getting things, getting good sense experiences, and that is agitating and frustrating and limited, or we're trying to be free of having to get something from the world. But all we do is we construct a world in our minds with our imagination that we imagine is not the world. But it's just another version of the world that we've imagined where we'll be free from the world we imagine is frustrating. And both of those approaches, you know, the greed to get, to hold on to just the nice stuff, or the aversion to get away from the limitations and the difficulty in life, both of those things are what the Buddha might say heats us up, agitates the heart, disturbs the mind. So this place of coolness is neither of those two. Running away, running from suffering isn't the cause for the release of suffering. Running from what's difficult in life is difficult. Right? Needing to run away or needing to get to whatever kind of experience we want, that's frustrating and it's difficult to always be needing something to be other than what it is, to be wanting something different than this. So the coolness the Buddha is pointing to is neither of those, and it has to do with right view. And these are really important clues. I mean, just this alone, that the path, and the Buddha, he says this, you know, he's saying, check this out, see whether there's some truth here for you. So just these two clues that it has to do, the path toward real freedom or release or deeper, deepest peace, has to do with right view or the deepening of understanding, a transformation of understanding. And then he gives us a very, a more visceral clue, coolness. Right? Well, that's, that, those, that's really useful. Because the Buddha or nobody can really hand us the answer. You know, from a Buddhist point of view, the problem is right here in the heart. It isn't the world. The problem is in our understanding. The root of our of human suffering is ignorance. It isn't that it's there are a lot of mosquitoes, or that my partner doesn't love me the way I want her or him to love me, or you know that I'm not very smart or I'm really smart but nobody knows it or appreciates it. Those are the things we normally think are the problem in life. But the problem isn't those external things. The problem is that this heart is disturbed by wanting things to be other than they are. So the Buddha says that there is a way, there is a path, and it has to do with the transformation of understanding, which means we have to be interested in our understanding, moment to moment to moment. So when we're cultivating mindfulness of the breath, or mindfulness of the body, it's just in the direction of being able to be mindfulness of the mind, or mindfulness of even more specifically, mindfulness of the view that's operating in the mind. 
What is the attitude or view? How is the mind relating now? And what is the consequence of how the mind is relating? This is the most important thing to be mindful of. And the mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the breath, and the other meditative techniques we take up, they're just supports for developing enough steadiness of attention, enough continuity of mindful awareness, so that we can actually discern the attitude, discern the mind's understanding in a moment-to-moment way. Like, for example, I mean, just an obvious example, can you imagine if we just maintain a thread of mindfulness today where, in a continuous way or somewhat continuous way, there was a understanding or a recognition, is the mind taking this moment personally or not? It is, it is, it is, it isn't so much, not much at all. No, it's not taking it personally, it's not taking... Yes, it is taking it... And just sort of following that thread. And the, uh, the amazing thing that would happen if we just maintained that thread is we would see this very strong correlation. When the mind is taking something personally, that particular view of taking things personally, there's always stress. Life is complicated and heavy and difficult when the mind is taking things personally. And then in those moments when the mind wasn't taking the experience that was being known so personally, then there was more space in the heart and mind, more freedom, more ease, and more skill in how the mind was responding in the moment. I mean, that would be so useful to get that in a direct way, because it's one thing to sort of hear it, like in a talk right now, that, uh, oh yeah, taking things personally is correlated with suffering and being unskillful in life. But that doesn't really change us. It's like we've heard that, all of us probably have heard that many, many times. And then, of course, we just start taking that personally. Like, oh, I really got to get that. I really got. But when we see it in a more direct, immediate way, we do what we do when we're holding a hot pan. There's just a letting go, a letting go of taking this moment personally. That's a natural, effortless response when it's directly seen. And that letting go of taking things personally is what the Buddha calls coolness in the direction of the unconditioned or nibbana or freedom. How to be right in the middle of this moment, engaged, sensitive, responsive, but cool. So there's an activity, this personality in a sense is set free to respond or not respond, to stand up or sit down, to speak up or keep quiet. So the personality is completely engaged and responding as skillfully as it can, as best it knows how. But there's this coolness not taking it personally. But it isn't because I personally think I shouldn't be taking it personally. The not taking it personally arises naturally from having gotten burnt so many times and making that correlation. Taking things personally gets hot. Not taking things personally, release, coolness, ease, and skill. In this chapter, Ajahn Chah uses this very 
provocative image of maggots and how attracted maggots are to filth. And he says, you know, even if you took a stick and separated the maggots from the filth, they have some sense, maybe smell, who knows, but some sense to get them back to the filth. And we're like that. We, in a way, even though taking things personally is intense and agitating and disturbing and frustrating and heavy and entangling, we still like to take things personally. And no matter what we're involved in in life, including Buddhist meditation practice, falling in love, raising a family, saving the world from the terrible injustices that are present in our world, no matter what we're involved in, our habit, just because of the way our mind is conditioned, is to make it intense in this personal way. Because we somehow feel like that's the appropriate thing to do. Everything we do becomes personally intense. Because in a limited way, but still in a way, that's what seems to make us come alive, is when things are personally intense, personally meaningful, personally heavy and significant. Right? Does that make sense? We like that. That's why we like Valley Fair and amusement parks, and we like, you know, just think about all the things human beings do. We like spicy food, and we like, you know, even though we may never sort of get involved in, you know, extramarital affairs, or, but it's like we like reading books about it or watching movies about it. We like that drama. We like watching shows about police officers and, you know, what are the CSI shows that are out there, you know, all these gruesome and intense things that happen that humans do. We like, if we don't have a lot of drama, we like talking about other people's drama and why it's all their fault. (laughs) So we have to uh, understand, like, we're a little bit like maggots, you know. We like to go toward the filth. We like to go towards this intensity that involves a lot of attachment, a lot of fixed views, opinions that we're identified with, good and bad. It doesn't matter. We can be intensely identified with pleasure and beauty in Buddhism, you know. So even things that are in our minds seem seemingly wholesome, but we can take them up in a very personal way that is not wholesome. So we just want to appreciate and even respect how deep this habit is, that we almost, it's almost synonymous with feeling alive this filth. This, you know, I'm just being provocative, but just this desire for intensity, passion. And this is why people react to, you know, hearing some of the teachings of the Buddha, because it it cuts really deep. They, They think that because the Buddha is suggesting that this place we get a lot of our meaning, the passion, the excitement, the intensity, the strong views, the strong identifications, because the Buddha's suggesting, hey, check that out. Is that really satisfying in the way you think it is? Does it really deliver the kind of peace and happiness you're interested in? 
we can think that the Buddha is anti-life, or like taking away the only thing we have. Like, what's left? You take that intensity away from my life, what do I have? You know, just, I just have this miserable life with no exciting distractions. I just have this ordinary grind, you know, of having to get up before I really want to get up. Not really having everything I'd like to have. Life seems so depressing without the dramas, the intense things, whatever it might be. So there's often a little pushback when the Buddha, or we hear these teachings about coolness. But the Buddha's not saying that uh, that coolness depends on not being involved. It's more subtle than that. There's a famous discourse talk that the Buddha gave. There was a man that, a monk rather, that was uh, really into seclusion, one of uh, the more senior monks, and really stayed away from the other monks and just went into town to get food, but basically stayed away from people other times. And one day, some of the younger monks were talking to the Buddha about this other monk who was really into seclusion. And the Buddha said to these younger monks, well, go tell this monk to come see me. I'd like to talk with him. So the monk came to see the Buddha, and the Buddha said, please tell me how you live alone, how you're practicing seclusion. And the monk then just explained, you know, how he has his place in the woods and how he really stays away from conversations and interactions. And and the Buddha sort of praised them in a light way. Yeah, that's, that's one way to practice seclusion. Nothing wrong. With that, you're not harming anybody by practicing in that way. But let me tell you about a better way to practice seclusion. And he goes on to give this very short, pithy talk about the real seclusion is not being attached to the past, not being attached to the future, but abiding in the present moment without attachment. So it's it's this radical presence, this radical engagement with the present moment. Now initially, the best place to practice this radical engagement is in a relatively simple environment. That's why we have this form we call meditation practice. But remember, when we sit down in a quiet place for 30 minutes or 45 minutes, the cell phone is off, you know, the cat is in the other room, or the people we live with know not to disturb us unless the place is burning down, and there we are, we're practicing a radical engagement with the way it is, the way life is, the way the world is, but we're doing it in a very simple environment so we can gain skill and take it on the road. So it's not about retreating from the world, oh, I'm in my bedroom, I've got the phone off, nobody knows I'm here, I'm all alone, it's great, nothing to bother me. No, we still have our mind, we still have the body. There's still a lot to bother us. I'm sure you realize, anybody who's been practicing, it doesn't really matter if you're in the cave in the high up in the Himalayas or the Sierra Nevadas or wherever you might be, you know, we bring our mind and all of our conditioning and all the aches and pains with us. There it is. But it's relatively simple. We don't really have a lot of duties and responsibilities for that 30 or 45 minutes. So we can practice this radical engagement with the body. 
Really being with the body, really being with the mind. Just like we would if we were out in the world interacting, doing our jobs, taking care of the kids, getting from one place to another. But now it's just relatively simple. How can the heart be completely undefended? How can the heart be completely sensitive, awake, alert, relaxed? And instead of like trying to do the meditation right, we're really practicing being free in that radical engagement with the present moment. What would freedom, the freedom from intensity, the freedom from this sort of construction of self who wants things to be one way, doesn't want things to be another way, what would the coolness, the freedom of all that look like in this moment? And we find, I'm sure you, for those of you who've been practicing, you, you find that in some moments... We really see not the way. You know, we're not seeing the way to freedom or coolness or ease. We're seeing the opposite. We're seeing how there, even in this simplified environment, we've got this huge intense drama about knee pain and about how I need to do yoga and where would the best yoga studio be and how am I going to have the money and what kind of tights should I get for that yoga class and will I feel okay about wearing those tights to that yoga class and... And then if I do that every day, you know, and I put in an hour and a half of yoga every day, then eventually I'll be able to sit, and then I won't have any pain when I sit, and then I'll really understand the teachings of the Buddha, because I won't have any pain, and I can really reflect deeply on what the Buddha said, and learn how to be free, and then people will notice that, that how free I am. And all of that construction, which, you know, I'm repeating the kinds of things that have gone through my mind, and not so much about the tights, but, <laughs> but you know, that's how it is for us. And, uh, and there we are, you know, we put aside this time, and, and all of a sudden we'll notice, oh, this isn't the way. Like, to have been, to have created this huge drama, whatever it might be about, and to be locked into it, tied up into it, entangled with it. And it's so, and then we see it. There's a moment of mindfulness where we see it. It's so, in a sense, humiliating. Oh. And, but a, but a ringing truth comes out of that. This is not the way to happiness. The mind, in this relatively simple environment where I put aside some time and I don't really have any other duties and responsibilities, having done this with the mind and body is not the way. And don't feel like a failure because seeing that clearly is a real step forward. Whenever the mind has created some intense thing and you see it for what it is and it's an intense thing that is heavy and entangled and it's not the way, that's an insight. We need to have that insight, I'm not kidding, hundreds of thousands of times in little and big ways over and over again through the years of practice. And then there will be other moments where there's just the breath coming and going or just hearing being known, just the flow of sensations being known. And there's no part of the mind constructing some intense personal drama about the movement of the breath in and out or the sensations being known or the sounds being known or whatever else is being known in the moment. There's just the knowing and not anything else. And then the mind can notice that Wisdom, in a sense, notices that. And there's this other ringing truth. Oh my God, this is the way. This is the way 
toward freedom. This is the way to live, in other words. Because there is no moment of our life where we can't be that way, can't be relating that way. It's just that it's relatively simple when it's just the breath coming and going being known, or the sensations of sitting being known, or the experience of hearing being known. But it's really not that different than being here in front of a group, giving a talk, and knowing that giving a talk is like this. It's just this body-mind, here and now, talking about the teachings of the Buddha, feeling a little heat in the body, you know, feeling aware of the seeing, aware of the hearing of my own voice. It's just this, being known. And if there is any self-consciousness, even that can be included in that sort of cool, wise way of understanding. Oh, it's just that sense of self-consciousness being known. Maybe a little tightness being known. So there's a way, we through this process of just formal sitting practice and then daily life practice, we're just learning, basically, from experience. When there are these massive constructions of self-drama, I'm exaggerating, a lot of times they're not so massive, but it's the ever-present, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, pervasiveness of these self-dramas that really breaks the heart wide open. That insight, like I said, that we have hundreds of thousands of times, this is not the way. Worrying about this and this way is not the way to happiness. Regurgitating this thing from the past is not the way to happiness. Wondering if I'm a good person is not the way to happiness. Wonder, wondering if everyone is or someone is noticing the stain on my shirt is not the way to happiness. Thinking that we're better than other people is not the way to happiness. So all these sort of self-dramas, these self-constructions, these entangling mind states. So we see that and uh, out of compassion, it's like a natural recoiling. You know, that sort of, just like we drop a hot pan if we notice we were holding it, the mind lets go of that involvement in the drama. And then it falls away. And in that falling away, that implosion or that letting go, there's that intuitive sense of coolness. What was intense and agitating and hot as it fades, as it falls apart, whether quickly or slowly, it's like, ah, ah. Here's a famous story in the Zen tradition about a great seeker who's spent time in all these different monasteries, practicing in all these different ways, and never really learning what he or she wanted to learn. And then uh, through the years of this person's practice had heard about this great teacher, you know, the proverbial great teacher in the, in the mountains. This mystery, like, is, it, is this person for, for real, or is it just sort of a made-up story? But anyway, this person decided, I'll check it out. So went out into the mountains, search in search of this great legendary teacher, and asking people, you know, whenever they ran into somebody, they asked, you know about this great teacher? One day there was this old woman walking down the mountain carrying a bundle of branches to sell in the village for firewood, you know, heavy burden, walking down the hill or the mountain. And he asks and engages this person about his quest to find this wonderful teacher. And in that conversation, 
this the seeker had enough sort of understanding to recognize there's something about this person, just this intuitive sense that this person had a lot of love, a lot of ease, a lot of freedom, just in who they were, how they were interacting. And uh, at some point, in really having the confidence that this was the person he'd been looking for, he asked, well, please teach me, something like that, you know. I've been looking for a long time for somebody who really understands this practice. Please teach me. And in that moment, she just released the bundle of that heavy load on her back, and it just crashed to the ground, you know, that bundle of sticks. And he got it. The, the seeker got it. Oh, yeah. He's just, just don't, in this moment, don't pick up the drama, like, I'm the guy who needs to find the great teacher to show me the way. Don't, don't get entangled. Just the coolness. Like, whatever the personality is doing, whatever the personality is constructing, whatever the external circumstances are, just allowing it to be without needing to add anything to it or take anything away from it. So the person just understood that what we can say easily in words, like just let things be, right? That's even a cultural cliche. Just let go, just let things be. So we know the words already, but to really get it in the moment intuitively, directly, he did, he got it. And they just shared that a moment of just together being free of self-drama, free of being for or against anything. And then just in that innocence and that incredible openness, the seeker asked the teacher, well, what's next? You know, what do we do with this freedom? And without saying a word, she, the old woman grabs the old bundle of sticks, <laughs> puts it on her back, ties it, and walks into town. Right? It's like a beautiful teaching. I would just do what's next. So it's not like you have to do anything special to be free, or because you're free. We just do what we're already doing, but now we're doing it without this internal or psychic entanglement or weight, the psychic weight. That's what we let go of. It's that coolness of not not uh, thinking that life has to be intense for me. When and I, about five years ago, went on a retreat with uh, Ajahn Sumedho, a really wonderful teacher, um, a Western Buddhist monk. And uh, during this, teacher, uh, this teaching, this nine-day retreat we were on, uh, he gave many talks, and often, at some point in the talk, and often several times during each talk, he would say something like, uh, I'm an unenlightened practitioner who needs to practice in order to be enlightened, in order to be free. And then he would just laugh and laugh and laugh <laughs> at like the absurdity of that habit of our mind to construct that story and then get entangled in it. Because when I have that story, I'm an unenlightened being who needs to practice in order to be free, I can, I can do all kinds of things. I justify all kinds of things, like wondering if you're further ahead than me, and how toxic that could be, or thinking that I'm further ahead than you is so toxic, or that I need to go to this special teacher in order to be free. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't go on retreats, or that, you know, that we are far ahead, or that we aren't far ahead. I'm just saying that that construction, you know, learning in my own practice, that that construction isn't helpful. 
the identification with that construction, it isn't helpful. It's agitating and heavy and stressful. That we can do the practice, we can be a mother or father, we can be a lover or a citizen, somebody who stands up for the injustices to make positive change in the world. We can do all of these things. We can build that wonderful cabin on the South Shore. We can basically do almost anything that isn't directly harming others. And that can be the expression of the freedom. So there isn't a particular way, a particular life we have to live to manifest this freedom, this ease, this coolness. Really, any of our lives will do. Any of our life circumstances will do. It's more a matter of this, this sort of resonant insight that things can be radically simple. So even if you're inspired by the talk and you really want to take up the practice, we can let that inspiration itself be impersonal. It's like, that's a movement of nature. We don't need to wrap a sense of self up with the being inspired. So tomorrow morning you wake up and you want to sit. Maybe you haven't been the very consistent, but you wake up and you want to sit. Well, just let that, whatever that intention is in the mind, just let it arise. And, and the body will follow, of course, you know, and you brush your teeth and you put on your whatever, your clothes, and you find a place to sit down and you compose the body. But it doesn't have to be a big self-drama that if I do this, then I'll become... And then, like, all of a sudden your mind starts getting distracted and you think, oh, that I had a, that sort of beautiful vision of becoming somebody who's good at this and now my mind's wandering and that's a threat to the beautiful vision I had about being this great meditator and not being so neurotic anymore in my life. And now we feel threatened by the d distractedness of the mind or maybe we're still sleeping and we feel threatened by the sleepiness or we drank too much coffee and now we're threatened by the, you know, the buzz in the mind. And then we think about what we're going to do next time so it isn't like this. You see? We get all wrapped up. And then instead of having insight, we're, what are we doing? We're manifesting suffering. But don't worry about that because that's probably going to happen to some degree anyway. But let's let it be a teacher. Oh, this is not the way. This is not the way. I did it again. But it's okay, I can forgive myself because doing it again wasn't personal. Why did we do it again? It's just habit. Those habits are not personal. They're just conditioned into the mind because of what's happened before. So we see that. And with great forgiveness and patience, we go, oh, okay. So we learn one more time, this is not the way. Constructing some notion of self who's good or bad, needing to do this, needing to do that, that's not the way. The way is the way of coolness. It's about a transformation of understanding. So instead of understanding this as being personal, I'm transforming that habit and understanding this as a movement of nature. All of this, internally, externally, intrapsychically, what everybody else is doing, it's all a movement of nature. And if we see that, it's really cool. In all senses of the world, word. You know, to this, have this sense of the life, the lives that are being lived as a movement of nature, an interdependent, very alive, no center anywhere in this. No center here, no center there. 
It's just the unfolding of nature. That's why we like being in nature, you know, in the woods or in the south shore of Lake Superior or wherever you like to be, is that when we get out of human civilization to some extent, it's just we see that there's no center anywhere. You know, when we're out, you know, like when weather is really moving, a big storm is moving in, we like that because we know something is happening, but we intuit there's no center to what's happening. There's no center to this storm, like a location where the storm is. No. It's just this interdependent movement of natural forces. And we intuit something about that. Maybe that's what's here too. This, what we call me, is also that no-center, interdependent, natural unfolding. And it's very cool when the mind begins to intuit this. Because you see, it's such a relief. Because the mind intuits, I don't have to make dramas. I don't have to make self-dramas out of the ups and downs of life. I'll just end with the story that Ajahn Chah has in this chapter at the end, where he talks about taking a log and throwing it in a big river. And he says, that log, if it doesn't get caught on the right bank or the left bank, if it doesn't rot and sink, it's going to get to the ocean. You know, that's the simile of Nibbana, or freedom. And what are the two banks that we tend to get entangled in? Happiness and unhappiness, or pleasantness and unpleasantness. Now, life unavoidably comes with pleasant experience and unpleasant experience. So, there are going to be these two banks. We're going to have pleasant, happy experiences and unpleasant, unhappy experiences. But the question is, are we going to build a self-drama when things are pleasant and happy or unpleasant and unhappy? That's getting caught on the bank. Some of us are going to have a lot more pleasant experiences than other of us who will have a lot more unpleasant experiences. And there's not a lot we can do about that. You know, people, some people are born with a lot of, for example, health problems, or they live in a war zone, or they grow up in poverty, or they live in a place where they're discriminated against, or, you know, any number of things that make life miserable for human beings. And other people just, you know, what do we call them, golden people, you know, they're beautiful and powerful and intelligent and kind and, you know, they just seem to have everything going for them. But they too have some, they, they run into the left bank sometimes, you know, the unpleasantness, but mostly they're just bumping up against pleasantness and happiness and they can build dramas around that too. So, but whatever we're bumping up against, can we float down, move through, accept the river of life? and how we bump into pleasant and unpleasant experience without the neurotic, without acting on the neurotic compulsion to construct self-drama. It's just what it is. Life is really great right now. It's really pleasant. It's really beautiful. Experiencing a lot of love, a lot of ease. Life is really difficult now. I have a lot of emotional pain, a lot of fear and defensiveness, a lot of mistrust. But I don't need to construct a somebody who hates this, a somebody who feels this has to be a personal problem. doesn't mean we prefer the unpleasantness that's arising for us. It just means this is what is arising for us now. It is like this. That is a ringing truth. You know, when things are unpleasant, it is unpleasant. When things are pleasant, it's really pleasant. 
in those moments. But can we just let it be that simple? It just it doesn't mean not do anything when it's pleasant or unpleasant, but we're not neurotically constructing an entangling web of self-drama around it. And this is the freedom that the Buddha points to and that Ajahn Chah talks about in this chapter. We have about 11 minutes left. It would be nice to hear from people. Your own understanding related to this, what I've said tonight from your practice, questions about what I've said. What comes to mind? Yes. I just knew you were going to say something I needed tonight. You always do, and I don't know how you do that. But I just spent five days with my mother-in-law, and she is one of the more difficult people for me. And in the past, I'd either just distance myself, I don't care, you know, I'm kind of isolating myself um, emotionally, or it's not as bad as I think. And this time, I just thought, you know, she is very difficult for me to be with. So what am I going to do about that? And I was reading Food for the Heart, and he was talking about trying to do things from a pure heart. So I was trying so hard just not to hate her for it and just let it be. And it was so difficult. And so my sitting tonight was just like, and that's okay if it was difficult. Like, just let it be okay. So that was so helpful. And she's coming back in September, so I get to try these are important teachers. Thanks so much for sharing. That was really useful to hear. Other thoughts people have? How you've been learning these lessons? You know, just all the different ways you're floating down and bumping in to happiness and unhappiness and how, whether it's happiness or unhappiness, how your mind has created drama, how you've avoided unnecessary drama and tension with wisdom. Or questions? Yeah, Kevin. Well, I just... Uh... I've, I've got this kind of this internet thing where I really uh, get sucked in to hours and hours of surfing. Um, it, it's gotten better over the years, but the, the big thing I guess that happened this week was I, I uh, as I was in the middle of another kind of, uh, what I call a bender, but I said, oh, this is what I do. You know, this is what I do when this happens. When this happens, I get a little stressed, or I don't get stressed, or I get bored, or you know, fly goes by. You know, and so this is, this is what I do when this happens. And it just like there was a nice release there. And normally, you know, when I've spent that much time online, I tend to spend like like almost the whole day sometimes, and I was able to just kind of, you know, just go, oh, okay, this is what I do, and then it just kind of went away. I got back to work, and uh, same thing happened the next day, and I even kind of thought, oh, tomorrow, this might happen again. You know, this just very well could, I mean, especially if the same things happen, the same causes and conditions, I probably, I may do it again, and I just kind of, kind of left it open-ended. Yeah. And I did, you know, I did go online again for a while, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is what I do. You know, this is, this is what happens when this happens. There wasn't any kind of blamey stuff. And, it, and again, I just, oh, okay, and I was able to drop it and get back to work and just notice a little bit more, uh, more ease with that. Yeah. Thanks so much. And I, I think that's such an important uh, example of this very subtle teaching because 
what we tend to do when we see that we're doing, let's just call it unskillful, like spending too much time in the internet. I, well, I think most of us would agree. You know, it's an easy place. And on a relative level, conventional level, that's not so skillful when we do that. But to sort of rally a lot of sort of willful, ego-based energy, that's bad. To be afraid of that, like, oh, I'm going to destroy my life. You know, today it's 10 hours, tomorrow will be 12 hours, and eventually it'll be 24 hours a day, and I'll probably die by the end of the month. You know? I mean, really, it, it can feel that way, and so we, we use that fear, and then, and then we repress the activity, or we try to, you know? But it always, it always breaks out, you know? Or if it doesn't, it's like the fear has locked us into a different kind of prison. So instead of watching or being on the internet, <coughs> we're sort of entrapped by this terrible fear that we're going to do something stupid and get lost or get, you know, consumed. So there's a, a different way. And this way that Kevin described, it doesn't mean that he was convincing himself that it's okay to be spending hours and hours on the internet. But the insight was really hating it or constructing a self-drama around it, it was something he could immediately do right here and now. That suffering could be released. And, lo and behold, it gets a lot easier to shut the computer off or get back to work if we let go of that neurotic drama, that I'm bad, or that it's okay, I deserve it, or whatever that is involved. So when we... What he said, I forget exactly your words, Kevin, but, oh, this is what I do. You know, you said something like that. My sense is when Kevin said that, this is what I do, it was just those words didn't make the transformation. Those words came with an insight. The mind saw that this is just nature, that this activity is just nature. And that, it sort of pops the self-drama. And that is an immediate ease. Now there's this activity of being on the Internet, but now there's relatively little self-drama. And without the toxicity of this self-drama, it's just easier to see, like, does this feel good or not? You know, The thing is, a lot of these neurotic habits of ours aren't really pleasant anyway. But we're so caught in the drama that we're disconnected, we're not aware how unpleasant it is to be doing whatever we're doing. So it's relatively easy to drop the addictive pattern when we don't have a big drama around it. Thanks, Kevin, for sharing that. A couple, maybe time for one more. Caleb, you your hand up? No, no, I was just oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about it? <laughs> I could probably make a drama out of Thank you. It's my first evening here. Oh, welcome. And I also have to agree, you said exactly what I wanted to hear today, and I thought my dear friend must have come to you and told you. <laughs> because we had a conversation several days ago, a realization for me that this addiction, or this desire to be drawn to agitation, uh, to create these moments of feeling alive, when you feel disconnected, this teetering between that agitation and wanting to um, also at the same time be in seclusion. 
So this constant kind of battle between making yourself invisible but having these reactions to things that are going on that you can't explain that, that agitate you. So the first paragraph just set the tone for me for the whole evening, and I thought, rascal, you must <laughs> So I, do, I thank you for that. Um, it it um, will give you something to be thinking about for days, I'm quite sure. Well, I'm going to say something. I, so I didn't tell him anything about what meditation is going to be like or anything. And we've been talking about coming for a very long time. And then you start today, at least in my mind, that you gave so much uh, meditation advice. I'm like, oh my God, he already knows that he is. It's his first time. He is like, <laughs> as if you are talking to him. I'm like, oh, he does that all the time anyway. Then he picked it up. So it, it was just so great. That was my drama. <laughs> but I thought you, yeah, yeah. But I really thought that you almost, as you always do. I, I just thought this is psychic. Did you pick up that it was his first time, and you were kind of talking about this stuff? So thank you. Yeah, and the the neat thing is in life, it's like, of course, I didn't. I don't pick up any of this stuff. But it's interesting, and I don't want to make it sound magical, but it's just like life seems to work better when we we don't have a lot of self dramas. When I'm not up here, like feeling neurotically that I got to give a good talk or I've got to pick up where people are at, or you know, it doesn't work. And how much suffering has come because we feel somehow obliged. I mean, for me personally, because I really care about these teachings and I care about my practice, it's very easy for me to construct suffering around needing or wanting to do a good job. So, you know, I've been doing this now a long time, and I've learned, like, that's not the way, <laughs> you know. Like, being worried or about, and I still can get pulled into that kind of suffering. So, uh, I'm glad that, you know, People get something from these teachings. I certainly do. They're not my teachings. I'm sure people understand that. These teachings are really, we are the great beneficiaries of the women and men who have done their practice from the time of the Buddha and, of course, even before, and have somehow transmitted what they've come to understand generation by generation. And then we get to be the fortunate recipients of the sort of lineage of human basic common sense what we call dharma practice, or this awakening that human beings are capable of uh, undertaking and benefiting from. So it's a good place to end. We could just maybe take a few seconds of silence, one or two breaths together. Maybe feeling some gratitude. And appreciating the interest that we have for the practice and the practice we've done. Really feeling energized about the possibility of real love and skill and calm and peace arising in our lives and also in the world. May we all be part of that arising. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. Really nice to be here together.